Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Well, good morning. Oh, shucks. You know, after all the times I've been in front of groups and not been nervous, I'm nervous this morning. So, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the thing that I've always thought about with regard to the Word is that it's supposed to do three things for us. It's supposed to edify us, it's supposed to encourage us, and it's supposed to exhort us. And for many of you here today, I think this is going to be something that's going to be encouraging for you. I think it'll, it'll edify you, of course, and for some it may be an exhortation. So with that, with that bit of an introduction, I want to tell you how this particular message got selected. I, I've been in a Bible study with several men that I've known for decades and decades. I was with one of them in a Bible study for almost 10 years. And uh, I'm still in this Bible study currently, and we meet weekly. And uh, so I've known these guys a long time, and these men are godly men. They're mature in the Lord. They're in the Word. And we were talking just recently, and uh, I mentioned a, a question that I heard that Dr. D. James Kennedy, who I think is now deceased, but he was the pastor of a large church down in Carl Gables, Florida, and he taught something to his congregation on evangelism. And he taught them a question that they used, and the question was, if you died last night and you stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you in my heaven, what would your answer be? Now, as a general rule, there are two kinds of answers to that question. I'm going to take my watch off and set it in front of me so I keep track of how long I'm up here. <laughs> but <clears throat> I'm going to tell you that I'm going to pose several questions during this message, and I am going to get back and answer them, but I'm going to make you wait a little bit for the answer. So we got to discussing this question, and, uh, and then the question came up, can you know for sure that you are saved? Can you know for sure? And the answer is yes. Scripture says you can know for sure that you're saved. Now, this is going to be the encouraging part. This is going to be the part where we're going to go, oh, well, that's really good news. <clears throat> At this point in our discussion, one of the men said to me, he said, I believe, but often I doubt my salvation. He said, I would like to know for sure. And then one of the other guys, with no hesitation at all, said, me too. And I was startled and surprised by this. And the reason I was startled is because these guys are grounded in the Word. I've been in Bible study with them for years. And to hear them say that, I was kind of like, whoa. And so it got me to thinking. And I said, well, what we need to do then is we just need to go to the Word and see what it says so that we can know for certain that we have salvation. And that's part of what we're going to do today. <clears throat> now, I'll come back to the two different answers to that hypothetical question. Like I said, I'm going to pose a couple of questions, and I'm going to come back and answer them. I'm just going to kind of hold it off for a little while. So, first, let's consider if you can know for certain that you're saved, that you have eternal life. 
Peter, the chief of the apostles, wrote to believers to make certain about their calling. He actually said a little bit more than that. Now, he would not have instructed believers in this manner unless it was possible to know for certain that you are saved. Listen to what he said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, the question I ask at this point is, do each of us want personal assurance? Well, of course we do. So the question is, what comes before the therefore? Remember that verse started with, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing you. So we're going to back up just a little bit, and we're going to look at the couple of verses that come before that. Here's what it says. It says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now listen to what it's saying. It says, if we lack these qualities, we are told we are blind or short-sighted about our being called and chosen by God. Whoa, that's, that's pretty startling. That would be serious, even a grave concern. Now, now we have to ask another question. What qualities is he talking about? What is Peter referring to? So we back up a little bit more into, in the passage. How is eternal? How is entrance into the eternal kingdom abundantly supplied to us? Again, I'm going to keep you hanging. I'm going to come back, and we're going we're to look for the answer. What qualities are we supposed to be able to look for and see that they're increasing, and that supplies abundant entrance into his eternal kingdom to us? So... Are we supposed to know for certain that we have eternal life? In the discussion I had with these three longtime friends, I mentioned the following verse. Listen to this one. This is 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Scripture says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There it is right there in Scripture. So what things was he talking about? What things did he write so that we would know we have eternal life? <clears throat> now, I said that the thing that startled me was that these guys who are so mature and grounded in the Word said, gee, sometimes I doubt my salvation. And first one guy said, I'd like to know. And then the other guy said, yeah, me too. Maybe some of you here today, even though you're longtime believers and are grounded in the Word just like these men, would also like to have more assurance of your salvation. Hopefully, as we examine the Word together today, you'll find exactly that assurance. If you're not saved, you will hear today how you can be. So as we proceed, let's go back to the question about what you would say to God if He asked you, why should I let you in heaven? One of the two answers that's commonly given to that question is something kind of like, well, you know, I, I don't lie and I don't steal and I haven't killed anyone and I, I don't commit adultery and I'm kind and I go to church regularly. 
I hope you'll let me in. That's one of the answers that you get very commonly. Before we're finished today, though, you're going to know that is definitely not the answer. So I'm still going to hold off on what the right answer is, but I want you to be listening for it. The Word says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. In Hebrews 11:6, it says, And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Who was the father of our faith? It was Abraham. Now, a little background on Abraham. Abraham was called out of the land that he lived in by God. He said, I want you to leave and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to give you and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And he told him he was going to do it through his son, Isaac. And then Abraham had this son, Isaac. He had the son when his wife, Sarah, was 90 years old and when he was 100. And then Isaac had sons. And one of those sons was Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And then the brothers of Jacob, of the sons of Jacob sold one of the brothers into slavery down in the land of Egypt, Joseph. And Joseph rose to be the second most powerful man in the nation, second only to Pharaoh. And eventually God used this as a great deliverance for his people. Now, back in the time of Abraham, you know, before the law was given because the law wasn't given until about 400 years after Joseph and his brothers went down to Egypt. They lived and they grew and they became a great nation. And then God sent Moses to lead them out. But there was no law. There was no Ten Commandments. It wasn't given until God led the people of Israel out of Egypt by Moses when he got the Ten Commandments up on the mountain. Now, here's what's interesting. If there's no law, you can't break the law. The Word says this in Romans 4.15, where there is no law, there is also no violation. Think of it like a speed limit, law on the road. If there's no speed limit, you can't get a citation for going over the speed limit, right? And so up until the time of Moses, there was no law for the children of Israel. Now, here's the flip side of that. If there's no law, if there are no rules, then Abraham couldn't say, hey God, I kept the rules, you have to let me in. Right? There were no things that God had prescribed to say, you gotta do this and this and this, or else you're not gonna be considered right by me. And yet we know that God was, was pleased with Abraham. Here's what scripture says. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How so? What's this credit about? It's like an accounting term. God said, you believed me, you trusted me, and so I'm going to credit righteousness to you. I'm going to take away your sin, and in its place, I'm going to credit you with righteousness. Now, God told Abraham to leave his home and go where he would lead him. And he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and it's going to come through your son Isaac. And then this little boy, when he was about 12 years old, God told Abraham to sacrifice. He said, go out and sacrifice him to me. Now, Abraham is thinking, well, God, you told me you were going to make a great nation out of me through this boy. So what did Abraham do? He proceeded to go out and sacrifice Isaac. 
Now, <clears throat> it tells us in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. In other words, Abraham trusted God so much that he said, well, you promised me you were going to make a great nation out of me. It's going to come through this boy, so you must be going to raise him from the dead. So he was prepared to take that knife and plunge it into his son's heart in obedience to God. We find more of this explained in Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 8. It says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on whom the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. This is David speaking. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So it didn't have anything to do with keeping the rules. It didn't have anything to do with working to achieve God's favor. It had to do with believing God. Now let me pose another hypothetical question to you. Let's suppose we just change one thing about the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And here's the way this hypothetical goes. Let's suppose that Jesus came to earth, born of a virgin, that he put on flesh, just like the scripture says. And then he did everything that the scripture tells us that he did. He walked on the water. He stilled the wind and the waves with a command. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He taught, love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for those who despitefully use you. He taught, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. But then we come to the part we're going to change. At the end of his life, he skips the cross. He just says to his disciples, okay, I've shown you how to do it now, guys. Now go and do likewise. And then he ascends back into heaven. If he had skipped the cross, then we would have God grades on a curve, okay? We would have an entirely different paradigm of faith if Jesus had not gone to the cross, but he did go to the cross. Listen, some people say they think Christ was a great man. They think he was a great teacher, that he was very honorable and ethical, but they stop short of saying they believe he was the son of God and that God raised him from the dead. They think following the teachings of Jesus is a good idea, but they don't call him Lord, and they don't believe he rose from the dead by the power of God. <clears throat> but Christ was crucified. Listen to this next passage. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. It says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm preaching, and this is the way God chooses to advance his kingdom. 
For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's what Paul said. We preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, here's something else. The Word says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, while Israel was still in slavery down in Egypt, before Moses let them out, you remember God did a great demonstration of his mighty power through the ten plagues that he brought on Egypt. And the last plague was where God told the children of Israel, he said, take a one-year-old unblemished lamb. That means it can't have a torn ear. It can't be lame in its limb. It's got to be a perfect lamb, one-year-old. Take that lamb and slay it and take some of the blood from that lamb and put it on the sides of your doorpost at the entrance to your dwelling and over the lintel, over the top of the doorpost. And he said... Then you are to stand in your sandals with your staff in your hand and you're to roast this lamb and eat its flesh and don't go out of the door of your house. And he said, my, my destroying angel is going to go over all the land of Egypt. And when he sees the blood on your door, he's going to pass over your house. But when he goes to, over the, the homes of all the Egyptians, the firstborn of every Egyptian will die in the firstborn of all of their flocks and herds. Now that was called the Passover because the avenging angel passed over the homes of the Israelites. And God said, do this every year at the same time as a perpetual statute throughout all your generations. And so the Jews have been keeping the Passover every single year since that time. <clears throat> now, when Jesus appeared to be baptized by John the Baptist, John proclaimed, he said, behold the Lamb of God. He pointed to Jesus, and that gives us a clue. He said, this is the Lamb of God. Jesus was the Passover Lamb who got sacrificed on Passover. He was crucified on Passover. That's the very time when the perfect, unblemished, righteous Lamb of God was sacrificed and his blood was shed. For us, remember it said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. <clears throat> now let's go back to the question, how can you know that you have eternal life? Well, it's a gift. It's not based on works. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans six twenty three goes on to say, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift. 
from God to us. We don't earn it. In Ephesians chapter 2, as we begin in that chapter, listen to what it says. This is talking about every one of us, me, you, all Christians. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. It's talking about the devil there. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we were dead in sins. We were enemies of God. We were children of wrath, just like all the rest. That's the state we were in. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I have to admit, I have a hard part, a hard time wrapping my head around that. That last part, I scratch my head and go, okay, I, I'm still looking for understanding on that one, Lord. But let me continue. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, Scripture says you must believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. If Christ is not raised, our faith is worthless. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 and 17 says this. If Christ has not, it says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. So we have to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. You say, I believe. Well, the scripture says the demons believe too, but they shudder. So what's the difference? Okay, let's keep going. In James 2, verse 19, it says, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. We'll come back to this verse in a little bit. But the point is, we have to join our faith with obedience. It's not earning our salvation. It is a result of our salvation. Listen to this next passage. <clears throat> Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil." No one who is born of God practices sin. Do you hear a common theme here? Practices, practices, practices. In other words, we must intentionally practice righteousness and intentionally not practice sin. Are we going to sin? Of course we will. 
we will continue to sin. When we do, we repent, God says. If we repent, he is quick to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, okay? But we can't intentionally practice sin. It says no one who practices sin is born of God because his seed, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Here's the key. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So it's necessary for us to love our brother. This doesn't mean love the whole world. This means love your Christian brother. Now that may be hard to, to stomach, but it's throughout Scripture. We're going to see a little more. Again, the question, back to why, if God said, you died last night, why should I let you in heaven, what would your answer be? <clears throat> Jesus said, many will say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Listen to this next scripture. In Matthew 7, 16, 23, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I don't want you to mistake something here. This is not like you have to work your way to, to favor with God. This is like a litmus test. This is like I go get a vaccination and they stick it in my arm and there are some kind of vaccinations that if it took, you get a little blister there. And they go, okay, that was effective. But if you don't get a little blister, it didn't take. It's that way with salvation. If you trust God, you will produce good fruit. It will be an outflowing in your life. He will produce it because you are in Christ. Keep listening. <clears throat> so then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's the key. Practice. What is your practice? That is the, the thing we look at. Now, what I want you to understand is this is not for me to look at your life and say, you're not in Christ. This is for you to examine yourself and say, am I in Christ? Listen to the words that come. The next question, <clears throat> does God grade on a curve? No, he doesn't. How good is good enough? Perfect righteousness is good enough. God gave Jesus the perfect unblemished lamb to die. When we believe, he credits us with that righteousness. That's how we're saved. We're saved because we believe God just like Abraham. Abraham trusted God and was ready to sacrifice his son, believing he would raise him from the dead. We do the same thing. We believe God. That's how we have eternal life. <clears throat> how are we saved? Listen to this from Romans. The word says, believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. But what does it say? 
The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, okay, Jesus as Lord, that means you have to say, I obey you, you're my master. I don't just believe you, the demons believe that he's the son of God because they got to see it firsthand. But they don't call him Lord, they don't obey him. We call him Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you do those two things, if you, believe, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it says, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Isn't it that easy? It's a gift. It doesn't say you have to keep a whole bunch of rules and regulations. It says you confess him as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Wow. Let's keep going. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? God chose the foolishness of preaching to advance his kingdom. How then will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now here's a warning. Listen to this next verse. However... They did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? <clears throat> so, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing the spoken word of God. When you hear God's word, supernatural things are happening because God said, I won't send out my word without it coming back to me and accomplishing the purpose for which I sent it. It will not return to me void. In Hebrews, we find more sobering words concerning our salvation. Hebrews 4.1 says the following, Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. A few verses later, in verse 7, we read, He again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Then a few more verses later, in verse 16, it says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in help to help in time of need. So the word says, today, if you hear my voice. My question for you, listening to this right now, is, is God stirring anything in your heart? If so, what do you do? The answer is, you repent. Right after Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, we read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus went on to elaborate about the need for repentance. Listen to Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. 
He says, now on this same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. In other words, some of those who lived in Galilee were killed by Pilate in a vicious manner, and he mixed their blood with, his, with the sacrifices they were sacrificing to pagan gods. And here's what Jesus said about that. Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I got encouragement coming, so don't get upset. <clears throat> he says, or you do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I can't go off script too much or this will take too long, but I remember when I was a young man, short of the age of 20, I realized that I was sinning grievously and it made me afraid. I feared God and I called out to him and I asked him to help me straighten out my life. I repented. I didn't quite know what it was at the time, but I knew what I was doing wasn't pleasing to God. And I look back on that 50 years later, and I think, thank you, Lord, for causing my heart to fear you, because the fear of the Lord is good, okay? It is good. Now, <clears throat> listen to this. If you repent, there is good news. We're all familiar with this next scripture, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. From the very beginning of the gospel and the church, believing was accompanied by obedience. The first step in obedience was to be baptized. Listen to this. In Acts 2.38, this is Peter preaching the first sermon there in the church at the day of Pentecost. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A few verses later, in Acts chapter 2, verses 40 and 41, we see what happened. It says, And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So repentance was necessary, and it was followed by obedience, the first step of obedience being baptism. <clears throat> does obedience save us? No, obedience doesn't save us. But if we are truly his, we will obey him because we understand what he's done for us by his grace and mercy, and out of an overflowing gratitude in our hearts, we will want to obey because we want to please him. When it dawns on us that I was dead in my trespasses and sins, I was a child of wrath like all the rest. I was without hope in the world, and he had mercy on me. He just had mercy. What's the result? I go, oh, God, thank you. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that you had mercy on me. And then I want to please him because, because of his great mercy that he's had toward me. <clears throat> Are there many different alternate paths to salvation? Listen to what the word says. In Acts 4.12 we read, 
and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which, by which we must be saved. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it tells us more. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Not Peter, not John, not Mary, not anybody else. There's one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, his only begotten son who was with him before the world was. He's our savior. He's our Lord. <clears throat> First John 5, 12 makes it plain. Listen to what this scripture says. He who has the son has the life, and he who does not have the son does not have the life. And now we can come back to answer one of the questions that I left open when I started. Can you have assurance of your salvation? How exactly is abundant entrance into the kingdom supplied to us? This is where you get real encouragement. This is where you start doing self-examination. <clears throat> Follow carefully as I read from 2 Peter chapter 1. About three verses in, you're going to start to hear the answer. And I have to read the first three verses so that I just don't jump right in in the middle of it. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God and our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied you to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Here it comes. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the, of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now listen to this following series of steps. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, this is what you have to take action on, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, number one, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. You get knowledge from the Word of God. You need to be in the Word. And in your knowledge, self-control. Self-control is the beginning of obedience. And in your self-control, perseverance, persevere in your practice of righteousness. And in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and listen to the end result. And in your brotherly kindness, love. The end result is love. God intends for us to demonstrate that we are his disciples by the love we have for one another, for fellow saints. <clears throat> now, it says this, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. What qualities? Moral excellence, knowledge, perseverance, brotherly kindness, love. Okay? But what if you don't lack those qualities? It says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And for in this way, 
entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. This is a key. It is something you can go to and you can stake a claim on. It's part of his promises to us. Now keep listening. The final goal is love. Do you love your fellow Christians? The word says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says, but now faith, hope, love, abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's John 13, 35. Do you want assurance? 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail the test? I'm going to give you the test by which you examine yourselves. Listen to the following. It says, and this is from James, it says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And then he gives an example. He says, If you have a brother or sister without clothing and in need of daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. That's the equivalent of the modern day, I'll pray for you. (laughs) Okay, I'll pray for you. But if you do not give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. We've heard this before. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. They don't have the obedience. They don't have the works. They don't call Jesus Lord. But you, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. This is straight from the word. This is the the holy word of God. And faith comes from hearing. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So you see, a man is justified by his works and not by faith alone. We're not saved by our works, but if you love God, if you have called him Lord, you will have works because you are abiding in him. He will produce the works. You look at your own life and say, is love increasing? Is patience increasing? Listen to this. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. That's that passage that I just read was James chapter 2, 14 through 26. Now we're almost done here. And I told you I'd come back and I'd give you the answers to some of the questions that I posed at the beginning. Listen carefully to these next scriptures, for they provide you with a self-test to determine if you're in Christ and have salvation. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I'm the vine and you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. 
for apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're not in Christ, you can do all the good works, give to charities, all the kind of stuff you think would be good, but it won't be fruitful because you're not in Christ. Listen to what comes next. And my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So here's the question. What kind of fruit is Jesus talking about? Does he mean you have to go out and get a certain number of disciples? You have to make a certain number of converts? No. Listen to this. In Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 23, we read, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you examine yourselves and you find these qualities good, if they're increasing, you're on the path, abundant entrance into the kingdom, the eternal kingdom of our Lord will be supplied to you. If you don't find those qualities, but instead you find the qualities that are found in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, that's not a good thing. Listen. These are the qualities that are the antithesis of that. Greed, evil, full of envy, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, arrogant, unloving, unmerciful. What is greed but the love of the world and cares about riches? If you examine yourself and find these qualities or immorality, impurity, or sensuality, then you need to cry out to God for help. The call is to repent and believe and be saved. In looking back, we cannot earn our salvation, for we're saved by faith. The object of our faith is Christ, more specifically, His shed blood on our behalf and His resurrection by God. We must believe this in our heart and make Him our Lord, our Master, and we must confess it with our mouth before men. Our assurance comes as we examine ourselves. Are we good trees producing good fruit? Are we seeing more and more of this good fruit in ourselves over time? Is it increasing? Are you being diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you? Because that's exactly what the Scripture tells us we're individually supposed to do. You are either practicing righteousness because the Spirit of Christ now dwells in you Or you're still practicing lawlessness and sin because you've refused to hear the call of God and repent and be saved. Think about the parable of the sower and the seed. The third kind of example in that parable was that the word started to to spring up, but it was choked out by thorns and thistles. And Jesus revealed to us that the thorns and the thistles were worries about the world and cares about riches. That's the, in my mind, that's the foremost thing we as Americans in this rich culture have to, have to guard against. We don't want to be in love with the world because it says the love of the world is enmity towards God. <clears throat> Do not let the word be choked out and prevented from bearing good fruit because of worries about the world and cares about riches. If you examine yourself, do you see good fruit and is it increasing? If you do, you know Christ is in you and you have eternal life. If you do not, then do not wait. Repent and believe and confess Jesus as Lord and be saved. Finally, what's the answer to the hypothetical question when God says, why should I let you in heaven? And now you can't say, well, it's because I kept the rules. I didn't lie. I didn't steal. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't murder. I hope you'll let me in. 
That's not the answer. This is the answer. Father, it's because I believe in your only begotten son, Jesus, as my Lord. He shed his blood and died to take away my sins. You raised him from the dead and will raise me. I'm your adopted son through him, and he lives in me. Like all the rest, I was dead in my sins, but you have saved me by your grace and mercy. Let's close in prayer. Father, this is your word. I pray that you will prevent the evil one from stealing it away from our hearts. Lord, if there are any here that are unsaved, I pray that you would move in them, that you will cause them to believe in Jesus, your only begotten son, and to confess him before men. Thank you for your word, which is mighty and powerful, that's living and active. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.